0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Welcome to Mini Medical School. We're going to be talking about uh, orthopedic uh, trauma research this evening. And uh, my name is Sam Worshed. I, I work in the, uh, in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery here. My partner david sheer who i 'll introduce in a little bit is going to is also going to be uh speaking this evening and uh, Our goal is to uh, lay out what we do as uh as academic orthopedic trauma surgeons um, when we 're not operating um, and what kind of research programs we 've uh we 've been building both domestically and uh and internationally so I think that the best place to start is to to help you all understand a little bit about what I do. I'm sorry. Hopefully you haven't had a, hopefully hopefully you haven't had dinner yet um, because this is orthopedic trauma and it's uh, it it can get it can get it can get pretty graphic. Um, so I when I'm explaining what I do as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, a, a, an orthopedic trauma surgeon, I tell people I do three types of surgery or take care of three types of patient. I take care of patients who have had a high-energy trauma, um, and this is an example of a uh, of a guy who was involved in a in a motorcycle motorcycle collision, and uh, and it ended up losing his foot. Um, I take care of low-energy trauma, okay, and this is the sort of thing that uh, that folks in community uh, community hospitals take care of a lot as well. These are. You know, broken broken hips, broken wrists, broken shoulders. These happen from what we think about low energy falls or trips or, you know, smaller, smaller, you know, smaller levels of injury tend to be more isolated injuries rather than have, you know, has somebody coming in with, you know, multiple bones and organ systems involved in the trauma. And I take care of cold trauma, um, which is, uh, is stuff like this. This was a this was a seventeen year old girl who um, who was visiting family in Mexico. Was involved in a motor vehicle collision. Ended up having surgery down there, and uh, this was complicated by uh, a deep infection, some soft tissue loss here, and so this was her seeing me uh, us taking her to surgery for probably around six weeks after her original injury. Um, so. Infections, bones that don't heal, um, or bones that heal kind of crooked in a way that affects function. That's what we think about as cold trauma. Um, Now, why bother with orthopedic uh, trauma research? Dave and I are going to, uh, uh, I think, uh, convince you by the end of this evening that um, orthopedic uh, trauma is a big deal. It's a big deal nationally and internationally and we 'll we 'll get into some more of the statistics, but here are just a few just to whet your appetite so road t- traffic accidents are among the top three uh, causes of of disability uh, globally they will be by two thousand and twenty um, Fractures cost uh, more than one hundred billion dollars a year in lifetime medical costs and productivity loss in the united states and um, We, like many other areas in medicine, are rapidly developing technologies uh, in order to better treat our patients. Um, But the research just hasn't kept up with that rapid development. And so in order to practice in an evidence-based and cost-conscious way, we need to understand what you know what the effect is what the what the relative effect of one treatment versus another is in offering our patients the best and most economical solutions to their orthopedic problems so what are we doing we're we're, we're trying to we're trying to evaluate technologies treatments with one purpose in orthopedic research and really research in general, and that's trying to to find a signal some some true effect within all of the noise that we see in in uh, in the you know in our clinical practice in in the data that we're presented with we we're trying to figure out where you know where is there a real effect and how do we separate out the truth from bias okay um, this you know this this notion of evidence based medicine i 'm sure that as as medical students here in the audience you all are 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 very familiar with this and what i 'll just tell you what evidence based practice means to me it means the conscientious use of the current best available evidence from clinical clinical care research in making health care decisions okay so there are a couple of things that are in, implicit in this statement so for one it's not it, 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 we do, we don't we don't ignore the um, we don't the, ignore the the opinion of a very experienced clinicians when we're deciding what we do right this is that part, conscientious that understanding that along with being a, a an evidence based Surgeon, we also understand the importance of experience, right? Because what we do is very much an art and a craft as well as a science. Uh, the current best evidence is, is I think, self-evident. We, we want the best research. We want to produce the best research. And we want to be consumers of the best possible research and interpret those findings in a way that inform what we do. And we make healthcare decisions, and decisions are, some, are a two-way street. We make these decisions with our patients, okay? It's not just about what I think or Dr. Shearer thinks is a great outcome for our patients. Increasingly, we've begun to understand that we need to focus on those outcomes that are most important for our patients. So a pretty X-ray doesn't always make a happy, well-functioning patient. The hierarchy of evidence. So... Um, I'm going to assume that none of you are clinical epidemiologists out there. This is kind of the, this is the hierarchy of, of evidence. This is what we think of as the best evidence at level one that comes from randomized controlled trials, true experiments. And going down the pyramid, we go from prospective cohort studies to more retrospective-type studies, ultimately to expert opinion, right? And as you go down the pyramid the propensity for bias increases so whenever we can we're trying to base our practice on data that's coming from higher levels of evidence whenever we are able as investigators to perform a study that that ranks up there at the top of the pyramid, we know that we're doing the best we can um, in generating useful evidence for, for people. Now, what, is the, what are the obstacles, right, in doing surgical research? I, I don't know how many surgeons you've, you've heard of so far, uh, or he- I've heard from so far in uh, in your medical training. Um, But it is really hard to blind surgeons. And so that's one thing that really reminds us that we're not talking about randomizing somebody to, you know, an active pill uh, versus a placebo. Um, There are placebo and sham type surgeries that are done. But in general, we take a very important actor, and, and it is very difficult to make that person, the treating surgeon, blinded to at least surgical therapies. So that's one problem. That's a, that's a unique obstacle in surgical research that folks don't deal with um, in internal medicine. Um, we don't have as many validated patient uh, important outcomes. And this is something that I think is improving, even, that I, even what I've seen in the last 10 years has been remarkable in the effort to validate and bring to bear instruments for measuring outcomes for our patients that really reflect how those patients are doing. Um, large prospective studies are incredibly, incredibly expensive to do. So I, I do clinical trials um, and I investigate both drugs and treatments that, that are meant to improve fracture repair. Um, I can tell you that it, it costs somewhere in the neighborhood right now of twenty to $30,000 per patient uh, to run a clinical trial. And most clinical trials now need big numbers. We're talking, you know, at least 500, often several thousand patients um, to really p- adequately power these studies to show the effects that we're seeking. So they can be time-consuming and very expensive. Um, surgery is a complex intervention. I'm going to go back to this this, uh, this notion of a pill, right? In a medical trial, you take you know you take a pill or you take a placebo. Surgery, I tell my my trainees that surge, any one surgery is a countless number of interventions. It's ten thousand pills, right? And so it, be, it can be very difficult to to try to distill when we're trying to figure out whether. You know, one implant works better than another, or one procedure works better than another. There are all kinds of biasing factors here, right? I mean, because this is, this, as I said, it's a complex intervention. There are countless things that I do during an operation that, that may affect outcome, right? Maybe it's not just the plate, you know, my choice of plate, which might be the, 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 the treatment that we're, we're interested in testing so it's it's complicated and distilling those effects can be a challenge and along with that is this idea that expertise varies widely there's no question right that 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 there is expertise that is acquired over time certain certain patients or certain uh, for certain physicians are very experienced at doing a particular type of procedure others are not so you can't you can't assume that if you use those those two those two differing levels of expertise, and you randomize one to treat a patient one way and one another way. That you're going to get the equi- equivalent delivery of that treatment that they're supposed to render for that patient, and so this creates a source of bias that we have to deal with. And there's this word equipoise that you probably have never. It sounded kind of a funny sounding word. Um, it, very important when we do especially randomized trials, right? That we we surgeons and our patients need to really feel this sense of true ambivalence about what, about receiving one or the other treatment. Of course, it would not be ethical for me to randomize a patient to get one surgery if I thought that surgery was inferior to the other treatment arm right? So I have to have that sense of ambivalence, and so does my patient. And I don't know if any of you know surgeons, but surgeons are pretty opinionated people. Um, and folks who are going to surgery uh, or, or seeking surgical consultation are, you know, are going through a lot of, you know, I mean, it can be a stressful time. And it, it may not be a time that a patient wants their their treating physician to say, you know, they're you know, there's treatment A and there's treatment B, and they both kind of work well. I mean, usually, the, the, you know, the response I get is, well, what, what, you, you, what would you do? I don't want to be randomized. I want, I, I want you to do for me what you'd do for yourself. And, I, again, I'll explain to patients that, you know, I have that sense of ambivalence. That's why I'm running this clinical trial. But that, again, these can be difficult communications um, to have with our patients so i 'm going to shift now to talking about trauma in North America, and this really means trauma trauma research in 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 middle and high income countries because Dr. Shear is going to has a wonderful presentation to talk about our international uh, programs um, working in, in, in uh, lower income uh, uh, settings and low resource settings so we 're going to talk about what we 're doing here what we 're doing in the United States Canada uh, Europe, and elsewhere so I've got a couple of bins that I'd like, to, I'd like you to think about when I'm, I'm talking about different types of projects here that I think will be helpful for you. There are common problems and there are, are uncommon problems, and we'll talk about kind of the, the, the scale of what, a, you know, makes a common problem and what's a, what makes a rare problem. But in general, they have important implications. The frequency at a population level that they turn up has an important it has an important determining uh, influence on on uh, on what kinds of studies we do, um, and we do different types of studies. Um, the, surgical research is a big you know it's a big it's a big area. We often um, compare one surgery to another surgery. Other times, we will uh, compare surgery versus non-operative treatment, and I've got some interesting examples. Um, uh, of that kind of research. We often will uh, do what's called factorial trials where we, we, where we are testing both a surgery and an adjuvant medication. You know, it might be a medication that we think will, you know, could improve the quality of bone healing, for example, okay? So we'll do these trials where we test both different different techniques and different medications. And of course, we do a lot of trials to try to better prognosticate outcomes and identify risk factors for both good and bad outcomes, okay? So that's, that's what we're going to talk about. So common problems, large numbers, and I'll, I'll give you some examples, uh, t- typically lower complexity, okay? And, again, this, this idea of equipoise. Something, a a problem in which we think we, we will be able to easily establish equipoise, both on the part of surgeons and patients. And if that's the case, We're in business. We can start thinking about how to do a true experiment, a randomized trial, right, where a random number generator or a flip of a coin determines whether a patient gets one or the other treatment. And, you know, we could spend hours talking about the theoretical benefits of randomized trials, but just think about it this way. When we leave the treatment determination up to pure chance, okay, that has this wonderful quality of equally distributing all known and unknown risk factors between the two treatment groups. Whenever we leave treatment assignment to anything but chance, okay, all kinds of biases can creep in. Biases on the part of the surgeon. We may be biased by the severity of the problem we're treating. And so those become very difficult to extract later on. That's the magic behind randomized trials. So... These are some common problems geriatric fractures, okay? As our population ages, we are seeing more and more of these fractures. These are yearly incidents, yearly hospitalizations for these particular diagnoses in the United States, hip fractures. Wrist fractures, shoulder fractures, what we call proximal humeral fractures. These are the three most common uh, 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 fragility fractures. And um, you, I am sure you know at least one person who's had one of these. Um, We could probably throw vertebral compression fractures in there as well. Okay, super-duper common. Um, And a lot of them, uh, we think at least, uh, benefit in some cases with surgery. And others don't. And we'll talk about some trials that have looked at that. You can also look at isolated extremity fractures in the young. So these are things like ankle fractures um, or collarbone fractures that, you know, those of us who who do a lot of fracture surgery, we're just seeing these, you know, these, these just line up in our clinics. They're very, very frequent. They tend to be kind of that lower energy trauma bin that we were talking about earlier. Okay? So let me give you some examples Okay, and, and these are all trials that we have participated in our group at some point or another. This first trial I want to tell you about is a, a study called INSIGHT. Um, and this is a, a trial in which we enrolled patients with intertrochanteric hip fractures. So most common type of hip fracture um, occurring in, um, in older, uh, uh, older individuals. There are two treatments that you can see for the fracture that you can see over there down on the bottom right okay? One way to treat this is with, and I'll point this out to you here, um, is with a cephalomedullary nail, okay? This nail goes inside the bone, it's inserted through a hole up here, and it has a locking bolt that goes into the head and another one that secures it distally, okay? Another way of treating it is a sliding hip screw with a side plate, okay? Both of them are very good treatments, okay? We actually don't know. I have studied this literature very extensively and for most of these fractures there is not really good compelling evidence to to suggest that one or the other treatment works better so we enrolled we actually just finished last month with follow-up on our, our very last enrolled patients so these results have not been published they'll be coming out probably within the year uh, primary outcome was health-related quality of life at two years. There were a whole host of secondary outcomes that were also um, followed over time, including some functional assessments, how, be- how fast somebody could get up from a, from a chair or walk 10 meters. Um, so there are, most of these trials actually have several outcomes that we follow, but we typically choose one, one outcome uh, to uh, to select to power our studies, to understand how many patients we need to actually find the differences that we're interested in finding. OK. So um, this is another one. Okay, We talked about surgery versus no surgery. Okay, These kinds of trials have actually uh, come up a lot in the last 10 years. And I think some really, I'm going to go uh, through a couple of really influential studies um, that, have, uh, th- that have been published, this one in 2015. Um, Proximal humerus fractures. How many people out there have know somebody who's broken their shoulder? Proximal humerus. A couple of hands. Uh, a lot of hands. Yeah. Okay. So very common fracture as well. Um, and uh, this study enrolled patients. Um, mean age in this study was about 66 years of age. Um, and they were comparing surgery. And it could be any kind of surgery because there are actually several types of surgeries that we do for this kind of problem. One is that we take the bones, we align them as best we can and we fix them with a plate and screws, okay? Uh, You can also insert a nail, kind of like the nail you saw in the last picture there that goes inside the bone and has additional fixation into the head. And then a third way is to actually replace the shoulder, okay? And so all of those different types of surgery were thrown into the surgery bin. OK? And patients were randomized to either surgery of some kind or, or non-operative treatment. And they were followed. Um, and uh, shoulder function was assessed at two years. And lo and behold, there were no differences detectable at two years. This is always a hard thing for us as surgeons <laughs> to acknowledge, right? Um, but it, it was very clear um, that there was, there was absolutely no benefit evident from uh, having surgery. You can see how closely these lines for their shoulder scores approximated one another at, uh, at two years. And there's some nuances to this and some subgroup analyses, but that's the main point. And I'll tell you, this has Im- in- impacted my, the way that I treat patients. I treat a lot more of these kinds of injuries non-operatively now with this information. Uh, a nice economic analysis was also done on the heels of this study, which showed that um, there, that having surgery, surprise, surprise, is a lot more expensive um, than non-operative treatment over time, um, and there was less than a 10% chance that surgery could actually be found to be cost effective. They did a probabilistic uh, uh, economic analysis. And uh, you know there's a certain willingness to pay for additional quality of life units. And this clearly showed that there was a, a, just a, a, a tiny chance that it could even be considered cost effective um, uh, form of treatment. All right, another surgery versus no surgery. Uh, I have to show one, by the way, that shows that surgery helps, or, or <laughs> I'm just I, I, I'm not going to feel good about this talk. Um, so this was a this was also a very influential trial, maybe one of the most influential clinical trials in orthopedic trauma. I think in the last you know 10-15 years, um, in terms of how how it's affected practice. So when I was a trainee. Um, we never fixed a collar bo- a broken collarbone. Um, I think at the very end of my training, we were, we, you know, we were, th- this, this study had come out, and we, you know, we started, we started uh, fixing them. And then there's been a lot of literature in the wake of, of the positive findings from this study that have really impacted the numbers of clavicles that are actually being fixed. We're probably fixing too many now. But anyway, this was a, you know, a moderately sized trial, not huge, um, but I think very, you know, very cleverly put together, they looked at displaced clavicle fractures. So not fractures that, you know, there's some that br- they break, but there's just a crack and they're, they're pretty well aligned. These are displaced clavicle fractures. And they followed those patients for one year and um, found a, uh, uh, a, a benefit to surgery. Um, and so they, fought, they had two outcomes that they followed. There's something called a constant score, um, and a higher constant score means a better outcome. And you can see that there was a large benefit to begin with, and those that benefit sustained itself over uh, the one year of follow-up. The DASH score, uh, conversely, uh, uh, a lower DASH score is a better outcome. And here you can see the operative group um, had a lower lower score um, throughout the, uh, the follow-up period. So surgery leads to better function and fewer complications. And so this has had a big impact on, uh, on treatment of these injuries. Okay. I bet, I bet a lot of, you know, people, anybody out there know somebody who had a, a collarbone fixed <coughs> operatively? Yeah. Okay. So pretty common, pretty common. Um, all right, let's get into some uncommon problems. Okay. Um, These are rare conditions outside of trauma centers, okay? Um, So uh, what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of these conditions, these uncommon problems, are only presenting to a place like San Francisco General Hospital, okay? You don't see a lot of these injuries in the community. Um, They're technically demanding, okay? So I talked about that kind of any surgery being this, you know, Ten thousand little interventions, and these, these tend to fall in that category of just more complicated stuff um, in terms of the interventions it takes to get these patients taken care of. We we also think about common problems uh, uh, leading to a limited understanding of or uh, of the drivers of treatment and outcome. Right. So for some of these some of these problems, like a, a mangled foot, like this young lady that I, t- that I took care of a few years ago. <laughs> these, are you know, the, the, the decision to salvage a limb like this or amputate it is actually a very complicated decision-making process. And so some of the early research that led to some of the pivotal studies that I'm going to talk about actually was just trying to understand what drives a surgeon to go one way or the other, what factors, right? And also, of course, we're interested in, you know, which factors affect outcome. Um, and we... You know, uncommon problems because of their rarity often make randomization questionable or even unethical, all right? And that and so we are thinking about now a different, you know, a different kind of study, okay? And I'm going to show you a few examples here, okay? Sorry, another bad picture. Uh, this is that girl, by the way. If you prefer to look here, that you can. That this is a little bit less offensive. Okay, um, so uh, you know, just you know, some examples of these are you know hip and pelvic fractures in young adults, limb-threatening injuries, infections complicating fracture repair, and when bones don't heal. Okay, these are all kind of rarer conditions. So, let's talk about a couple of a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, uh, recent and past efforts in understanding. Uh, how to how to investigate these uncommon problems okay one uncommon problem is breaking your femoral neck in a young patient, so somebody who we consider young would be less than 50, 55 years of age okay this this fracture super duper common in in elderly folks, but in young patients, these are high energy injuries and they typically show up at 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 uh, at level one trauma centers okay now. There's there's been a lot of debate about the best way of repairing these, and there's a lot of you know a lot of opinion, right? When it, when 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 we get into these uncommon problems, the the debates are full of opinion, and the practice and the treatment approaches vary more widely. What we're doing in the Faith Two trial is we're trying to understand which of these two treatments, and you guys have already seen the sliding hip screw with a side plate. Um, versus just three cannulated screws, um, is a, which one of these treatments is better? And this is one of these factorial trials where we're also randomizing patients to vitamin D supplementation (laughs) versus placebo, okay? So these patients are getting randomized both to surgery and to, uh, supplementation with vitamin D versus placebo, and we're following these patients for a couple of years to see if there's any difference that we can attribute to one of these treatments, okay, um, in uh, affecting revision surgeries over time. I'll just tell you that this this is this is an albatross. This is this is a tough problem, you know, of of, of a lot of things that we treat in orthopedics. We still see in the best of hands complication rates, revision rates of 20 to 30% for these kinds of fractures. That's like unacceptably high. And this is why this is such a hotly debated area and why we're trying so hard to do better um, uh, in treating these kinds of injuries. So rare problem, but really catastrophic consequences, right? Femoral neck fracture, right? In you know in a 20, 30 year old patient, that's a big deal, right? Because if that, if that doesn't go well, and the femoral head dies, or it doesn't unite. That's a total hip replacement. There's no other really good solution for it, right? Um, and that's that's just something you rather avoid, you know, when you're in the earlier decades of your life. Great operation down the line, but not when you're a young person. All right, limb salvage. I'm going to show. I'm going to keep com- coming back. This is that same uh, young lady that I took care of a few few years back. Okay, um, a mangled extremity. Um, and this was her at two years, and she walked without a limp. And I have a video I, that I pulled from this presentation, but uh, this was a very successful salvage, um, and her quality of life was quite excellent. But that's not always the case, and sometimes we do all of this. This was two. This was a lot of, you know, a lot of hours of my work and a lot of hours of, of one of my plastic surgeons who helped me um, with this case. She got two free flaps. Um, you know, one to move a, uh, a, a, a part of her fibula from the other leg over to reconstitute this missing section of bone, and another one to bring soft tissue to cover it all up. Um, but I'm saying this is, this is, you know, this is kind of technical wizardry, but it, always does, it doesn't always turn out this way, right? I have plenty of patients, you know, where we do this and it doesn't go well. And even if we save the limb, they don't function well. All right, and they have chronic pain, and a lot of times we think that the patient have been better off having amputated, and that was the impetus behind the lower uh, extremity assessment project or the LEAP study, um, uh, where over 600 patients were enrolled with limb threatening or mangled uh, 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 lower extremity injuries. and this was a prospective observational study. So we did not feel at the time that this study was done, and still don't, that it's an ethical thing to do to randomize a patient to salvage versus amputation. The stakes are too high, and most patients and surgeons would never feel comfortable doing that. So we enrolled these patients. We, not me, this was done while I was still a trainee. So it's been uh, some decades now since the, the study was done. Um, and uh, followed these patients over time, and followed uh, health-related quality of life, function, and a number of other outcomes. And uh, the the definitive paper showed no difference, which was shocking. And this 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 outcome was fa- they they looked at it at two years. They followed this cohort up again at seven years. Same deal. It was shocking to us that there was no difference in health-related quality of life um, in these patients, right? Because it's such a stark difference, right? This is one patient I had that I did an amputation on for a mangled foot. This is our young lady after she'd healed everything up. Uh, you know, how could that, that end how up? Could that how, be how, be how could that be compared? possible, right? How can, it, how can those two outcomes yeah. be compared? Yeah. Yeah. So the... What we do is we administer questionnaires, okay? So these are questions like, you know, everything from like, you know, what, what's your emotional state? Do you feel, how often do you feel depressed in a, over a month's period of time? You know, what's your energy level over the course of the day? Can you climb stairs? You know, can you do these various activities of daily living, right? Um, so those are the kinds of questions, right? They're not necessarily performance tests, like you know, can this patient run faster than this patient or vice versa. But I'll tell you that even the answer to that may be somewhat counterintuitive to you. Um, but these patients often get fit with a prosthetic and can function actually quite well. All right, we did learn a lot of important things from Leap, though, um, and and this has affected you know decades of research that's followed. I'm going to review that with you. So. of these patients um, uh, had persistent severe disability at two years, and barely half of them were back to work by seven years, okay? This is a huge impact on a group of patients whose mean age is in their 30s, okay? Huge, huge impact, and that begets some of the numbers that I showed you at the beginning of the presentation. It disproved some of the older injury scoring systems that a lot of guys with gray hair, you know, came up with. You know, one of them, for example, was that if there is no, if you have no feeling at the bottom of your foot when these patients come in, that that patient will never... You know, that patient will never have a good uh salvage outcome. Well, that turned out to be false in this study. About half or more of those patients who had no feeling when they came in and were salvaged ended up getting their feeling back. And even then, even if they didn't, they were still able to function reasonably well. So it it disavowed us of some of these old, you know, these old myths about who does or does not do well. Um, it provided a conceptual framework for understanding the recovery process because what we realized in this study is that while surgery to either amputate or salvage a limb was not nearly as important as these resiliency factors that were measured, like self-efficacy social support, you know, you know the, the, kind of, the, the kind of thing that, uh, that comes from, you know, having friends and family around and just a, a mentality, this kind of can-do mentality that you're going to get over this. That can be measured, and that is that is incredibly important in terms of, progno- you know, prognosticating a good good outcome for patients, okay? And so this laid out all kinds of great questions um, for future uh, studies now since leap was published i don't know if you guys read the news but we've been in like war for like 20 years now and that's a terrible thing Um, but what war does do and it has done since the beginning of wars is uh, uh, offer an opportunity Uh, for some medical advancements. And so a lot of these problems that we considered incredibly rare and difficult to study actually were highly prevalent in our wounded warrior population, okay? And so what you can see here in in these two diagrams is the... uh, is the scale of extremity injuries both in terms of quantity and and disable in in disablement amongst our our wounded warriors and this got everybody's attention we need to do better we need to figure out ways of treating our wounded warriors better so that you know that they can get over these incredibly you know these incredibly difficult uh, problems right we do a much better job of saving lives on the battlefield and after after uh, after the battlefield, and that's led to m- a much larger percentage of wounded warriors surviving just to suffer over years and years with these you know these uh, musculoskeletal uh, 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 um, outcomes after extremity trauma. So, about um, about nine years ago, um, when we were in the thick of um, uh, these conflicts. Um, a, a group of of us, um, uh, some, some who were more politically savvy, savvy than others, and had the ear of of members of Congress, uh, convinced the government to make available uh, a much larger sum of money for uh, extremity trauma research. And we got together um, uh, over uh, twenty five. Tra- major trauma centers around the country, and put together a number of grant proposals and got a number of studies funded now we 've raised you know close to eighty five million dollars for various trauma trauma research projects, some of which i 'll explain to you here. This is called the metric consortium and it 's the the largest it 's the largest uh, Um, clinical trials network ever assembled in orthopedic trauma um, to address these kinds of high energy trauma problems. So again, the idea here is that we're taking these previously uncommon problems and in pooling our resources, we're now able to power studies that are getting, getting after answers that we were never before able to answer. And we were, you know, it happened because we were somewhat opportunistic um, in, in, uh, in reaching out for funding. Now, a lot of the projects that we've had funded through the metric consortium are, uh, are derivatives of this LEAP trial that I talked about. And that's what, you know, that's what we do in clinical research is, I think one of the things that makes it a little bit different than maybe laboratory research is that, there's never, let say there's never, there, 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 it's really not about being the first person to make a discovery. Clinical research, patient based research, is an iterative process, okay? And we get a little bit of an answer and we scratch the surface and we see a little bit of the truth, and then we look at it a slightly different way. And each of those answers bring up more questions. And so we, we now revisit LEAP. But in a little bit more of a nuanced way, we're asking a similar but different question um, with the outlet study um, in metric. We're trying to understand that burden of injury beyond which a patient would be better off with an amputation. Okay? So, up to a certain extent, you can imagine that with more limited injuries, we ought to salvage those limbs. Okay? But it gets to a point where the burden of that injury on that limb is so high that to try to salvage it is only going to set the patient up for an inferior outcome to having an amputation. And we're trying to d- determine what that threshold is. We're trying to understand. Uh, what techniques in amputation surgery actually work better? This is the tran- the, uh, the uh, 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 transtibial amputation outcome study or the Taos study. Um, we're trying to understand how to better measure fit and alignment. A patient who gets amputated has you know has uh, has a lifelong relationship if they become a prosthesis user with their prosthetist, and there's a lot you know there's a There's a lot still to be learned about how to best assess the quality of prosthetic fitting. Um, So that's another opportunity that we've taken advantage of here. And we're trying to figure out how to optimize these resiliency factors that I talked about um, in the TCC study, okay? This is a study, a very unique study design, where different trauma centers would be randomized to either having what amounts to kind of a trauma life coach for major trauma victims, um, somebody who helps them through the system navigating some, something like a super advocate, right? Who sticks with a patient over, you know, months or years um, to see if that affects these resiliency factors that we've seen to be so important. So, in summary, orthopedic trauma research in, uh, in, uh, in North America now focuses. Um, focuses on outcomes that's, uh, that are most important to patients. We strive to determine optimal treatment for skeletal injuries. And we, you know, we are increasingly leveraging communities of investigators to better uh, understand the management of, of both common and uncommon uh, skeletal conditions. Thank you very much for your attention. I, uh, I applaud you for not tossing your cookies over the course of that talk. Um, I promise that Dr. Shearer will not show as many gross pictures as I did. Um, uh, but yeah, let me let me introduce um, uh, David. David is uh, one of uh, one of my partners um, at the Orthopedic Trauma Institute. Um, he um, he is uh, he is really uh, spearheaded. Uh, our efforts to uh, take our, our orthopedic trauma research programs globally. Um, we have a very rich history at UCSF and especially in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery of developing um, these longitudinal partnerships um, with, uh, with surgeons um, around the world, particularly in, in uh, low resource settings. And um, I think it, you're going to really enjoy what he has to share with you all about our, our efforts in, um, in doing uh, global, global trauma research. Dave?
0: Thank you. All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, appreciate the introduction, and um, it's really a pleasure to be here and to talk to you guys about this topic. Something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it's going to be a lot of the same principles and, and topics that Sam was talking about, but we're just going to take it to a little bit different uh, context um, and think a little bit more, uh, a little bit more globally. Um, so my my goals. I'm going to talk. Uh, Sam alluded to it as well. Kind of what is the how big a problem is this? How big a problem is orthopedic trauma, and especially uh, when we start thinking uh, in a little bit lower resource settings. Um, we'll talk a little bit about our approach to conducting research, and we'll go through a few examples, very much like Sam did, except uh, again thinking uh, thinking in a little bit different uh, viewpoint. So um, there's a, a, a tremendous problem uh, internationally, not just in North America, with uh, orthopedic uh, with traumatic uh, injuries. Um, and uh, this is just uh, just emphasizing this, this bro- broader perspective that we're going to be taking. And this is just showing uh, countries, highlighting in red the countries that are, are low-income or low-middle-income countries uh, across the globe. And these are the places that we uh, partner with and do work with. And that might sound kind of uh, surprising in some ways that, that orthopedic surgeons would have a role in some of these places. I think when most of us think about sort of global health and the type of problems that are faced in places like uh, like Africa and some of these lower income countries, you'd think of things like infectious diseases, problems with sanitation, or infrastructure development, things like that. You wouldn't necessarily think about trauma, but um, the reality is that if you if you've traveled in any of these places, if you've ever gone to any of these places, you've probably experienced this. You know, the the roads are are tremendously congested. The, and, the, and what's happened really is that uh, many of these countries, there's been a rapid growth uh, in urban centers. There's been a shift in the population from being predominantly rural to being very urban. And there's been a rapid increase in motorized transportation, and there really has not been the uh, road traffic safety and, and, and automobile safety and things that we, we are accustomed to have not gone along with it. Um, but there's a demand. People want to be able to get to work. They'll take their whole family on a, on a motorcycle. And that, that's, that's a big problem. And how does that? How can we measure that? So one of the ways is we can look at look at um, mortality from from trauma, and um, you know HIV/AIDS, TB, and malaria are things we hear about in the news all the time when people talk about global health and when they talk about um, uh, what's going on internationally. So that's that's probably kind of what we're most used to. That's where a lot of the funding goes for these kind of problems, actually. But the reality is, if you actually look at the number of um, of deaths, there's actually uh, more than double, the no- or excuse me, uh, almost double the number of deaths from trauma uh, compared to HIV/AIDS, uh, HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis, and Merlea combined. So it's a huge, uh, a huge problem, and it's really uh, not, not really well recognized or understood. And uh, it's a problem that's unfortunately getting worse. And that's, we, we look at fatal injuries because that's something that's, that's easy to measure, but it's really the tip of the iceberg. Um, because for all for every fatal injury, there are these patients like, uh, like Sam was discussing in the first lecture. There are patients that are having these uh, complex extremity injuries or other types of injuries that they're surviving, but they're left with a tremendous amount of disability. And we don't really have great numbers for that. You know, We think it's about 1.2 million people every year that die in road traffic injuries, but it's about 20 to 50 million um, that actually are disabled. And we don't know for sure, but that's what it's been estimated. So it's a, tr- it's a huge... Huge number, um, and and who is affected by these injuries? You know, it, it's it's actually disproportionately the poor. About ninety percent of injury-related deaths uh, occur in low and middle-income countries. So all those countries in red that we are uh, showing on the map at the beginning uh, disproportionately disproportionately bear this burden uh, of trauma, and it's also the young. Um, these are, a lot of, these are road traffic injuries, so these are the higher energy injuries that, that uh, Dr. Morshid was referring to that uh, affect these really young patients. And, and trauma is the number one cause of death and disability between the young ages of 15 to 49, higher than all those other infectious diseases and all the other, other problems that you too might read about. Um, and that's not just an impact on health, it's also an economic impact. The... Um, uh, Sam talked about the, the cost in the United States, but if you look globally in and, and many uh, low and middle income countries, this costs uh, as much as 5% of GDP. So, I mean, if you just think about that, it's just 5% of the uh, GDP of some of these countries. So it's a really profound um, uh, profound impact. So what are we doing about it or what's being done about it? Well, it has been recognized by the World Health Organization, which is, you know, the the uh, international body that governs, uh, governs these type of issues. And they've designated actually this decade the um, decade for, for road traffic safety. And this what this graph is depicting is, here we are at the 1.2 million deaths per year uh, in 2010, and, and at the top of this triangle is the, is the projection. This is what, with no intervention, this is what, what would happen. And this was the goal, uh, was to decrease, to get under one million deaths per year. And save five million lives over the course of a decade, and here we are now, and it's 2017, and what's what's happened? And it it turns out it's kind of about halfway. It's it's remained about the same. Nothing's really uh, changed overall. And why is that? Well, if you look closer, what's happened is that we were doing better in North America. If you look at this is this is in total, and if you look at high income countries, um, there are much fewer deaths in most high income countries. But if you look at low income countries. There are actually more deaths. So while things have gotten better uh, in, in in Europe and North America, things have gotten worse in Africa and Southeast Asia and, and many of these countries, uh, unfortunately. So that's where the problem uh, continues continues to grow, despite uh, the efforts of the WHO. So what are the needs? Um, you know, I think they go uh, span across, you know, there's the saying an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and I think that that's very true, and I think that that's the WHO's effort. Um, but there's also, even in this, even in the United States or Europe, there's still a need. There's, there's still a need for good trauma care systems to take care of people affected by traumatic injuries, to reduce the incidence of disability after injury occurs, improved rehabilitation programs. And that's really kind of, as orthopedic surgeons, this is kind of where we... This is what we think about. This is where what we uh, do, and that, and it's similar in our approach to our international partnering. This is kind of where our focus is: is, is trying to help them develop improved surgical care and, and rehabilitation programs. So, uh, Dr. Morseau alluded to our, our international program. We, uh, within our Department of Orthopedic Surgery, uh, uh, these uh, are a few surgeons who had had a long history of international volunteerism throughout their careers. And in 2006, they developed an initiative within our department uh, to um, begin trying to partner with academic centers in developing countries to try to improve their uh, their education and research and improve care of, of traumatized patients and try to address try to address this this uh, this epidemic of trauma uh, in developing countries. And these are kind of the pillars of how I got structured and and. Um, you know, a lot of our efforts focus on education and exchange between, uh, between sites, and it go, it goes, it's a bilateral exchange that we do. But what I'm going to focus on today is really, because this topic is about research in orthopedic trauma, is our research initiative. And so this is a, uh, an effort to try to improve uh, uh, capacity for doing clinical research in developing countries, because if we don't have the numbers or we don't have the data, then, then we don't even have a starting point uh, to try to solve uh, this enormous problem. So, the research initiative, again, is really focused primarily on academic partnering. And so, we have uh, relationships with uh, hospitals uh, across the globe, and we, our focus is on trying to build their capacity to do their own clinical research. The same kind of, all the questions that we, that uh, Dr. Morsha talked about here in the United States, they have a, a unique set of problems that they're dealing with. And our goal is to empower them to be able to answer those questions. Uh, uh, themselves. Not to just go in and do it ourselves and leave, but to actually build uh, capacity. And that's a really important um, principle in our approach uh, to academic partnering. And the ultimate goal is to generate this evidence uh, to, number one, to uh, establish the gravity of this problem and help it garner the attention that it deserves in terms of for funding and for uh, a focus in in developing new treatments and approaches to, to preventing this this disability and also generating the evidence, the solutions to to many of these problems. Um, These are our main uh, current academic partners that are active in research. We have other uh, countries where we do exchange programs and things like that. These are the main uh, places where we're involved in uh, clinical research programs. And I'm just gonna talk a little bit about a few of them just to give some idea of what it looks like. And the similarities, but also some of the contrast between the types of questions that uh, that we have here in North America. So Tanzania is a partnership that's really been, uh, been um, uh, a fruitful partnership for us. Um, and these are two of our main partners uh, uh, there that we work with. Um, we started partnering with them just in 2011, so it's a relatively young partnership, but it's been very, very productive. They... Um, are in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which is the capital of Tanzania, uh, and they serve a population of about 5 million with this one uh, orthopedic trauma center. It's the main referral center for a huge uh, huge number of people, and they see a a huge volume of uh, patients affected by road traffic injuries, cars and motorcycles. Um, And this is an example of a patient that... uh, that they might see there. This actually happens to be one of my patients. This is a patient who was, uh, crashed his motorcycle. Um, and he has, uh, uh, among other injuries, he has one of his injuries is a left femur fracture. <clears throat> femur is the thigh bone. And this is something that we see fairly commonly uh, at trauma centers. And in the United States, this is an easy decision. You could pull 100 orthopedic surgeons, and I'm pretty sure we would almost all do the same thing. We'd put a we would put a rod down the middle of the bone, um, and we call this an intramedullary nail. Uh, it's very effective. This is a patient at uh, about a year uh, after—excuse me, six months—I think after surgery. His bone's already healed. He's doing well. Um, so great, uh, no problem. The issue is that when this patient comes to Tanzania, the the things aren't aren't quite aren't quite so simple. Um, the they don't necessarily have the options for treatment that that we do, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, Sometimes the treatment's just not available uh, because the OR, they simply don't have operating rooms or the capacity for the ORs is not uh, adequate. Um, Sometimes it's that the uh, surgical implants, that rod that went down the middle of the bone, is actually a fairly expensive device. In many developing countries, the implants... Uh, unlike in the United States, if you if you have surgery, the insurance company, you'll never even know the cost of that implant. You, you're never going to show up on a bill. It just gets sort of embedded in the cost of your hospitalization. In most developing countries, you might get your bed paid for, but the implant, had, most patients have to pay for up front. Before they can ever go to the operating room, they have to pay up front for the surgical implant. <laughs> And these implants can cost hundreds, sometimes even thousands of dollars. And in the context of a developing country, that could be, you know, weeks or months of of pay for somebody. And that it can be an insurmountable cost in many cases. And the governments in these places aren't willing to to foot the bill. So it's a really big barrier to surgical treatment. And there are equipment issues, too. We use a lot of intraoperative x-rays. We've got a lot of special tools that we use in order to do the surgeries the way that we do them. And many of those tools just aren't available uh, in these in these uh, low-resource environments. Or so if they are available, they're not working, and there's no one to maintain it. So there are a lot of issues. Um, and so that, that straightforward surgery that we do 10 out of 10 times here uh, it just isn't there. And then there's also questions about, you know, is the operating room as sterile or... Uh, things like that so maybe surgery maybe the risk benefit even if you had the rod maybe it's not such a good thing to do if the patient gets an infection from surgery maybe that's uh not doing him any, any benefit and so there's some people have concerns about that should we even be be promoting doing surgery in a setting where where that that might be a higher risk and so um how do you treat it if you don't have a rod well there are alternatives so this this is how if you uh broke your femur in this country even uh you know 40 or 50 years ago, you would be treated in this manner. And it's a pin that goes through right below your knee and you hang weights off the end of the bed and it'll actually hold the, hold the femur in alignment for long enough to allow your body to heal it. Now it might take two or three months. It doesn't always work and it might not heal. It might not heal straight, but, um, but that's, if that's what you have, that's what you have. And unfortunately in a lot of these settings, that's, that's, uh, that's still, uh, the only thing available. Um, and this has a huge impact on the hospital systems. I mean, these are wards that are just filled with patients. You see these weights all hanging all the way down the row. Um, and because it takes two or three months for the bone to heal, and if the patient's slow to heal, maybe longer than that, uh, you can imagine what effect that has on just filling up these hospitals, and they can't uh, turn over these tremendously long hospital stays. Um, and these hospitals are just tremendously overburdened. You see patients on the, on the floor, and it's a, it's a really, a really really big Big problem for them. Um, this is one alternative that's kind of interesting. It's a it's a nonprofit company in the U.S. that's actually one of our partners, and they um, and for uh, over 15 years now they've been manufacturing a rod that you can, similar to the one that I showed in the picture, that you can put put down the bone and fix some of these injuries. Um, they manufacture and they donate it actually free of cost. And they, it's designed with this special jig. And it's that's important mainly just because you don't need some of those special equipment. You don't need the intraoperative x-rays or some of the power tools that we normally would use. And so it's really kind of well-equipped for use in some of these more uh, austere operating conditions. And so one of our the first studies we did in Tanzania was just trying to look at, well, does this work? I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but... For all the issues we talked about, we don't really know if promoting surgery is such a good idea. Is it safe? Is it effective? It's not quite the same thing we do in the United States. It's done with very under different conditions with different equipment. Um, and we enrolled about 300 patients, which is, you know, by our standards, is a, is a pretty good-sized trial. And we found that surgery was safe and effective, and patients did do well. Um, it allowed them to mobilize, and uh, we were able to show that their quality of life, which... Uh, got much worse immediately after injury, actually returned to very near their baseline, with few exceptions. And the exceptions were if they had a complication, and there were some complications. There were some, some cases that required reoperation, but we found that some of them were, were preventable. And this is like one case where the rod was inserted in not quite the right place, and it leads to the fracture being aligned not quite right, and then that leads to it not healing. And this was a technical issue, we were able to identify in the study and show what the issue was, and that becomes a, an opportunity for intervention and improvement in patient care. We also found that in terms of implants, not all the patients were treated with rods. Some were treated with uh, plates and screws, which is a treatment we just have virtually abandoned in the United States because we don't think it's as good, but we were able to again show that it's definitely not, not a, a good option uh, using, using this, this research. And perhaps more than anything, it was an important proof of concept for us because we were able to show that this wasn't quite the level one on 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 Dr. Moreshed's pyramid, but it was level two. You know, it was it was it was a, it was for the setting that we were doing this study. It was really a a, a high quality study, and that was important for us in showing that this mm-hmm. was a a rational approach that we could do research in this setting and that it could be uh, be be very beneficial. We also have a partnership in Malawi. These are some of our friends from there. Uh, this is a newer partnership, and there we're uh, doing a study where we're directly comparing patients who have the rod to the skeletal traction. Malawi is a is a is a country, very small country, very close to Tanzania. It's even, it's actually even poorer than Tanzania, and they don't have. They're still treating the majority of patients in the skeletal traction. So these you know patients are lying in bed for three months, and so we're trying to study that there, and we've uh, we enrolled about 130 patients from five different hospitals. And we're looking at the quality of life of the, of the traction treatment uh, compared to the surgical treatment with the rod. But we're not quite there yet, but those results are coming. We think this could be really, really impactful, uh, potentially. This is just a picture showing a uh, person getting the pin in their leg. So I don't have so many gross pictures, but I've got... <laughs>
1: got <a couple. laughs>
0: um, but what about cost, too? Because, you know, what do governments respond to? And I think the, you get the sense that the governments aren't so worried about health, but I'll tell you they care about dollars and cents. And so one of the things we wanted to look at is, okay, if someone's staying in the hospital for three months, that's expensive. Um, and even though you're avoiding the cost of surgery, laying in, the ho- in a hospital bed for three months uh, has an impact. And so we did, did look at a subset of patients in very in very detailed manner, uh, kind of looked at all the costs of all the personnel and all the equipment and all the things that went into the traction treatment and everything that goes into the surgical treatment. This is kind of a busy graph, but... The traction cost is here. It was about $420. And then the surgical treatment, it depends on how long the patient is waiting for surgery and in the hospital. They had huge delays getting patients to the operating room because most of them, they were trying to treat in traction, and then if it wasn't going well, they would do the surgery. And so the average length of stay, even for surgery patients, was, almost, was a month. Um, but if we looked at if they could increase the capacity of their operating rooms, uh, increase the availability of the implants, and they could get the pay- get it down to just 19 days, which is not asking much. I mean, it's I generally here it would be less than a week, but if they could just get it to 19 days, then surgery is actually less expensive than skeletal traction. So, in spite of the cost of surgery, that the the it- shorter hospital length of stay and, and quicker rehabilitation actually de- decreased the cost to being less than less than the skeletal traction. Um, And this doesn't include another really key piece, which is the indirect cost to the patient. So if the patient's lying in bed for three months, they're not working, their family is probably having to take care of them, and they might not be able to work. Um, And there are a lot of other indirect costs that weren't factored into this analysis. If you add that in, and we're working on that as well, uh, this might even, this differential might even be even larger. So coming back to uh, the patient I was talking about in the motorcycle crash, if you looked close, you saw that he also had another break down here in the tibia. There's another really common one that we see. So we call this a floating knee because it's broken here and it's broken here. Um, Not only is it broken, this time he's got an added level of difficulty because the bone came out of the skin. And so some people call that in a compound fracture. In our world, we call that an open fracture. So he has an open tibia fracture. Um, and in our setting we we clean out the open wound Uh, once we get it nice and clean then we proceed we treat the we treat it with a rod just the way we would treat the femur and we address the open wound sometimes we need our plastic surgery colleagues to help us out if it's a complex wound but we're generally able to do that and uh, again it's a it's a the decision making is straightforward again we shift now to the low resource context of Africa and all of a sudden uh, the decision-making is much more difficult. Um, this is Sorry, this is, I think, my only gross pic- really gross picture, but this is kind of what one of these could look like. But it's basically when the bone pushes out uh, through the skin. So um, there's sort of, in if you don't have, so now you not only have a bone problem, but you also have a soft tissue problem that has to get addressed. And a lot of times in Africa, they don't have the pla- plastic surgeon and the techniques to be able to deal with the soft tissue problem. And so then the kind of the whole algorithm is, is thrown off because now do you really want to put a metal rod into the situation where you have an open wound and there's a high risk of infection? Um, and so it's a really difficult, difficult problem for them. What's the alternative? Well, there's this thing called an external fixator. Um, this is a device where there's pins that go in the bone from the outside. They avoid the area where the wound is. This is a patient in Africa, in Tanzania, with one. Um, and the idea is that it can still hold the bone in in its alignment, but you don't have to put metal into the wound. Well, that sounds great, but it's still not not as rigid. It's not as solid. It doesn't facilitate bone healing in quite the same way that the rod does. It also can get infections because these pins are sitting out going through your skin. There's bacteria living on our skin all the time, and so there can be issues there too. But this has been kind of the standard of care in Tanzania for this type of fracture for some time. And so they wanted to ask, uh, uh, perform a research study um, to look at this question. And so we're, we're currently in the midst of that. We've uh, enrolled about 230 patients, and this one is a randomized control trial. So in Dr. Morshed's paradigm, this is the coin flip. So patients are basically coming in, they're getting a coin flip. Uh, if they have an open tibia fracture, and they either get the external fixation or they get the internal fixation, and then we're following them to see uh, in which cases the bone heals, in which cases they get the infections, to see which treatment is better in this context where you don't have quite as much access to uh, some of the things we do here. We're also, in, in many ways, uh, analogous to the LEAP study, but more for this type of uh, uh, austere environment. We're looking at patients that are amputations. Sometimes when you have that open wound and you can't, do anything for that, it unfortunately leads to an infection, and the infection often leads to an amputation. And so we're trying to better understand what the outcome of those patients are. Now, in, in our setting, part of the reason I think a lot of people were surprised to hear that the amputations do almost as well as sometimes a patient who has, sa- has a saved limb The reason is because we have really good prosthetics. The technology is really, really amazing, and it's widely accessible to anybody who has an amputation. Unfortunately, in a lot of these settings, that's not the case. Uh, Most amputees don't get access to a prosthetic, uh, or they have to save up for several years in order to be able to afford one. Their whole family saves for it. It might take two or three years to get access to one. So one of our goals in this is to try to evaluate, well, what's the cost-effectiveness of this prosthesis? If, If somebody gets a prosthesis early, gets back to work... Uh, improve quality of life, um, maybe the, maybe we can start to generate some of the evidence that will convince these governments that taking care of these amputees uh, is worth is worth the investment. So these are just some other things we do. We host a course every year where we bring in surgeons from all of these countries and we teach about research. Um, this is something Dr. Morsch has led and we do a lot of small groups and we help them. It's very uh, hands-on. We try to teach them uh, the principles they bring their own ideas, and we help them develop their kind of raw ideas into kind of robust uh, research uh, protocols um, and it 's been a really uh, positive course. We also are trying to promote our colleagues to do many of the same things so We've established this organization called COACT. It's the Consortium of Orthopedic Academic Traumatologists. The idea is that, this was launched at our our meeting last year, we're trying to get our partners at other institutions to do the same thing. So our network goes to right now, you know, the five or six countries that I showed where we're doing research. What if every hospital in the US was doing something similar? Imagine the impact we could have if everybody was, was following a similar model. And that's the goal, we're trying to share ideas, collaborate, and uh, promote this model uh, across the country. So it's kind of an exciting new thing that, uh, that we're working with. So that's all I have, just to summarize. You know, Trauma is this really kind of unknown growing epidemic, and it's a big problem uh, in developing countries. Uh, I think research is uh, hopefully we 've convinced you is a really important uh, tool for us to help uh, better understand this and better understand which treatments are going to be the most effective um, and we believe in the international context that we really have an important role to play uh, in this model uh, of academic partnership. Thank you.
1: You're asking if trauma centers who are academically involved, as we are here, um, share share information on on various techniques they that they might have a shared interest in investigating. Um, Is that right? Am I? Yeah. And that's a great question. Um, You know, it, it brings up a couple of points for me. One is doing clinical trials is, is always a challenge because you're always, you're always balancing um, quality and design factors with generalizability of your findings, right? So one of the critiques uh, uh, leveled against clinical trials is that they, you know, because the inclusion and exclusion criteria are so strict, those patients that end up getting enrolled in the trial represent this, you know, this very, very narrow target population that doesn't relate to anybody in the real world, okay? So, what we want is our trials to be high quality, but also relevant, okay? And part of that relevance is accepting some kind of, some degree of variability um, in in how a treatment is rendered, right? Um, So, Even if I do a randomized trial because I'm, you know, I've got this great technique. Uh, that nobody else can replicate, and I show that m- my patients do better with this technique, that, that that doesn't really have any bearing for the rest of the world, right? We're, we're interested, I mean, this, you know, this, I mean, you can obviously see how important that is once we start thinking about, you know, global orthopedics. We want things to, you know, great, sur- great surgeries, great treatments, great medications, they work well in, you know, most surgeons' or physicians' hands. Um, to that effect, yeah. I mean, I think if if a problem is common enough that we want to do a clinical trial, um, we take we make a, a, a great effort to try to minimize the kind of variances that might be seen in how that treatment is is uh, is rendered. So we have a trial here, very similar to the open tibia trial that's being done in. In, uh, in Tanzania, right? Um, that trial uh, is is also being done through this this major extremity trauma research consortium that I talked about, and we spent months going around and making sure. So the idea here again is open tibia fractures. Should we treat them with external fixators or internal fixation, right? Which ones lead to lower, you know, lower reoperation rates and better overall outcomes? We spent a lot of time going from each of the, there were over 20 centers that were enrolling patients into the study. We spent a lot of time going through and making sure that there was a minimal level of experience and education in rendering at that time the less common approach which was the use of these external fixators to make sure that we were kind of balancing it sharing ideas making sure that okay so and so at stanford or ucla or johns hopkins they you know if if they get if their patient is randomized to get an external fixator that they get one that meets a certain degree of standard not that they are the world's greatest user of this technology, but that they meet a certain ability or expertise threshold. So yes, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, So the question is, what is the role of big data in orthopedic research or orthopedic trauma research? Um, The answer to that is yes. (laughs) Yes yeah so we we are in uh, we're in the process of uh, of figuring out what what parts of big data be they from you know from you know registries from electronic medical records you know oftentimes we're looking to pool these datas and cross reference them with one another um from various sources the problem the, the pr- inherent problem in that, and I think it's intuitively obvious to all of you, that um, the quality of the data matters, and um, it, when when you start looking at big data for answers to you know more nuanced questions a lot of time there's an enormous amount of bias and so in a short answer to your question is yes we're aware of it yes we're looking into it yes we've done some work with it but there's a there's a long long road ahead of us before we're able to really use those those data i mean they're efficient because they're there and everybody wants to use extant resources rather than spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars to go and, you know, collect new data, but that data sometimes doesn't doesn't quite meet meet the standards we need. So you're you're asking in reference to uh, the Profer study that we talked about, that there seemed to be some differences early on between treated and untreated groups that diminished over time, and that's actually a phenomenon we see in a lot of trials, right? That often there is a you know there's a, there, there's a more stark difference early on, and those di- differences tend to dwindle over time. You have to really be careful about. It, it, it inferring a difference early on when the study and the information there is not adequate to power a definitive result. So if you look at the confidence bars, Around both of those, there was some overlap, which basically means that there's not a statistically significant difference. Um, uh, and those differences, you know, even if they were statistically significant over time, if they if they end if they end up being the same, what would you say if I said that there's also a higher risk of reoperation? So if you have one operation, you're more likely to need another operation. There are also complications that come from surgery. Those were you know that that's getting down into the weeds of the study a little bit. And I'd you know encourage you to look at look at, look it up. It's you know, it and many, many papers have been written in its wake, both by angry surgeons demanding that it be redone because it's not believable. Um and, uh, and you know, and those who you know, those who uh, uh, interpret the results and help you know help the lay public understand them a little bit better. But it's a gr- it's still a great question, right? I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it wa- they did not adequately value um, that early tr- early period of time. A lot of people, you know, would rather that you know they would trade they would they would gladly pay extra money to. Have less pain and a better quality of life, even for a couple of months, even if it is the same in the end, right? So, it's a great question. No, so for, so are are you referring to the shoulder, the Profer study? So, in that study, it was usually a couple of weeks of immobilization and a sling, and then about six weeks of passive ac- exercises, okay? Uh, usually a home exercise program that, you know, folks would learn from a physical therapist and go and practice at home. And then gradually increasing weight-bearing and strengthening exercises after six to eight weeks. Is a cast or just a sling? No, just a sling for two weeks. What is the role of a team approach in managing uh, complex and maybe not so complex skeletal trauma issues? Um Dave, you want to answer that? Because you're as qualified as I am to answer it.
0: Um, Sure. Um, I would um, absolutely say that I think uh, a team approach is is hugely beneficial. And I think the greater communication there is between primary care providers and specialist providers, generally the better quality of care that's delivered. For every broken shoulder, there might be also high blood pressure and diabetes and a handful of other things. And the more we're able to communicate and kind of integrate our approach I think the better off, and that extends also just to the surgical team we have um, in the operating room we have a team we work with you know uh, nurses and anesthesiologists to make a surgery happen uh, after surgery there's uh, physical therapists, uh, occupational therapists and a variety of other people and so the teams are absolutely critical to to successful outcomes yeah I, I would
1: just i mean one one of the best examples of a team approach. I mean, we can look at it both in kind of that kind of high-energy trauma and low-energy co- trauma dichotomy that, you know, in high-energy trauma, these patients come to a level-one trauma center. It's not just the orthopedic surgeon taking care of them. It's the general trauma surgeons managing their belly injury, the neurosurgeons taking care of their head injury, the urologist taking care of their, you know, your, their urethral tear. It, you know, it's a team, team approach. It's one of the reasons that, I, that the two of us love traumas. it it's a team it, it's a team sport um in lower you know in the kind of low lower energy trauma realm um we we work very closely with uh with medical doctors with internists with endocrinologists um in managing metabolic bone problems that uh that that allow these these fragility fractures to occur and hopefully to prevent them from happening in the, in the future
0: yeah. The question was, do you, when you're considering what a better outcome is, do you consider cost? Um, and it's a, a really good question. Um, I think if the, it's been an evolution over time, actually. I think um, historically, not, not so much. I think we've much, been much more focused on, um, on the outcomes themselves. And, you know, earlier it was the surgeon, what the surgeon thought was a good outcome. And over time we've evolved towards, okay, well, what what's important to patients and now we're thinking about patient important outcomes Um, but increasingly because of the the environment of healthcare what it is today and the fact that we are resources are not unlimited we're we're being forced to look at uh, to look at costs Um, and it's a controversial issue a little bit how you know how we incorporate that in decisions Um, if you have uh, especially the, the scenario that's the most difficult is when you have a treatment that's marginally better, but much more expensive. What's the threshold in that? And that's a really controversial, ethical area, where in the United States, we honestly haven't totally tackled. Uh, I know some other countries um, with more kind of socialized healthcare systems. They actually have uh, designated bodies that conduct these analyses where they uh, you know assign a cost per benefit and they set thresholds, and they say if it's not a not doesn 't meet that threshold then we're not going that 's not going to be covered by this national health plan and so um, yeah, so it is I think increasingly important, definitely when you shift to the low resource context in a place like tanzania then it then it's hugely important because then resources are really, really constrained, and you really have to do a lot with a little, so you you have to have to incorporate that for sure yeah the the question was. Um, since resources are very constrained in, in a lot of these developing countries, are there, um, like, non-physicians who can uh, essentially deliver the same type of care? And the answer is yes. It's actually really um, it, the concept is ta- it's called task-shifting. And um, Malawi is actually a really interesting example. They have, um, they're called orthopedic clinical officers. Um, they are, um, don't go to medical school. They're not physicians, but they're just trained to do basic orthopedic procedures so they can put on a you know they can straighten out a broken wrist they can put on a cast they can put the skeletal traction that we showed they can put that on um, and it's a much less expensive to train them they you know they don't their salaries are less so it's it's very cost effective for delivering uh, a ba- sort of the basic level of orthopedic care now they can't do these fancy internal fixation, limb salvage type things, but they can do all the basic stuff. So in that in that setting, it's a very effective model. It's not universal by any means, and Malawi is a really interesting case example, though. Yeah, so the uh, question was about China specifically and where does China fall on this kind of spectrum from the high-income country to the uh, low-income country, and there's sort of everything in between. I think um, the answer is it's rapidly evolving and that, you know, China... You know, is becoming a, is, you know, coming into the high income country category rapidly, um, but, and has probably tremendous variations in certain urban centers where you might get care that's very, very similar to the United States to certain rural areas where it might, it might not be uh, a, a similar standard of care. Um, so, it, it's somewhere in between it, and there, I think there 's a lot of variability probably, but to be completely honest i 'm probably not i 'm not totally qualified because we, we do have some exchange some physicians from China that come and um, uh, work uh, or observe and and learn in our department and spend time with us but uh, i haven 't personally spent' been to China or spent time in china so i can't i don 't have any personal experience to share you 're talking the international or the one the local yeah. Um, well, it's really variable, and we it's sort of one of the struggles we face every time we come up with a new question. It's, okay, how are we going to afford to do this? And uh, it depends. And different types of studies kind of getting coming to that pyramid of evidence, you know, the randomized controlled trial in the United States, as Dr. Morsha had said, is $30,000 for patients. So you're talking millions of dollars through that trial. So those types of trials are funded by you know, bodies like the NIH or the Department of Defense in the case of some of the um, the metric studies that he talked about. Um, as
1: well as pharmaceutical companies and, and implant manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're yeah there are.
0: Yeah, that. you know, the inter- industry does uh, support a lot of research. That's a really good point. Um, you know, they play a role in... in uh, testing some of the new products that have been developed and things like that. So that's a source of funding. For the international research, you know, there are foundations that exist that, um, you know, uh, uh, provide funding for this type of work. And that's really variable from depending on the size of the study and um, and what needs to be done. Doing research in, in these developing countries also is not a, it doesn't cost $10 million to do the study in Tanzania. So that is one advantage. So we don't have quite – face quite the same – barriers to doing research from a financial standpoint.
1: All right. We're going to have to tie it up. We've got a hard stop at 830. Thank you very, very much for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about
0: this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.